Hey friends, I just want to invite you to consider joining the Theology Nara Patreon community. This is a group of followers who believe in the ministry and work of Theology Nara and want to support it financially. And honestly, I've been so impacted by the people who have chosen to support this podcast. Um, every month they send in a bunch of questions. A lot of them are really personal and I get to spend time responding to them in a private podcast. And we, you know, we'll message each other throughout the month and post responses to each other's questions. I'm actually going to start something new this fall, a monthly live Zoom chat with some of the members. And I'm super looking forward to actually seeing more of their faces every month. And there's other perks that come up, like a free virtual pass to the Theology Nara Exiles in Babylon conference every year. But honestly, I don't want to make it sound transactional. Every single single Patreon member that I've talked to says the same thing. We like all the perks. Uh, we're thankful for them, but we're just more thankful to support the ministry of theology in the raw, and we're glad to do so. So if this is you, if you've been impacted by Theology in the Raw, you can join the Theology in the Raw community for a minimum of five bucks a month by going to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. The link is in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in Iran. My guest today is Michelle Sanchez. Uh, Michelle has been a friend for several years now, as I have done some work with the Evangelical Covenant Church, and I just have always had massive, uh, massive respect for how she is so passionate about engaging in discipleship uh, in the church. Uh, she's kind of a guru in that area. So Michelle has an MDiv and a THM from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and she is the executive minister of Make and Deepen Disciples for the Evangelical Covenant Church and the author of her first and recently released book, Color Courageous Discipleship, which is the content of what we talk about in this podcast episode. Really enjoyed this conversation. Michelle and I, we talk a lot about lots of topics in in Christianity. Uh, this is the first time I think we had a really in-depth conversation about race and racism in the church. So I uh, really learned a lot, as I always do when I hang out with Michelle. So please welcome to the show for the first... Oh, I forgot to mention, forgot to mention... Michelle will be speaking at this year's, this next year's Exiles in Babylon conference. She's going to be speaking uh, during the Future of the Church session, where she's coming from the perspective of a, a denomination. How do we look at the future of the church from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, working within a denominational structure? So uh, please do sign up sooner than later if you hope to attend the Exiles in Babylon conference and hear a dynamic speech from Michelle Sanchez. Okay. Without further ado, please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Michelle T. Sanchez. Michelle Sanchez, recent author <laughs> of the book Color, uh, Courageous Discipleship Following, or Follow Jesus, Dismantle Racism, and Build Beloved Community with a forward from Ed Stetzer and an afterward by Jamar Tisby. Those are interesting. That's an interesting combo. I mean, both like obviously well-known names and uh, I've, I've met Jamar a few times. I've never met Ed Stetzer. So um, yeah, I'm excited to dive oh, into your book. Yes. And I wanted to say a lot, even by who I invited to write that forward and afterward, I yeah. intend for this to be a pretty broad conversation with relevance okay. For everybody. Yeah. Is, I was wondering if that was kind of intentional. I mean, Ed has a lot of uh, yeah. cred within more of the, I don't know, like Southern Baptist kind of circles, it's, I think, um, from what I know. I don't, yes. Those are my primary circles. And then, you know, Jamar seems to be upsetting <laughs> those circles every chance oh, he yeah. gets. <laughs> I, love yes. so, I love anybody yeah. that can provoke and like speak in ways that 
you know, like, wow, did you really say that? That's awesome. <laughs> okay, Preston. So listen, I am a discipleship girl. All right. Discipleship is my heart and soul. For me, it's all about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. Everything in the middle is about Jesus. And that is one of the big points of this book, that when it comes to anything regarding race or racial reconciliation, I'd like us to focus not on left or right or any of those categories, but truly on Jesus, who himself tends to upend any of our traditional categories of things. And so, yes, those were uh, I chose those two very specifically because we can all agree on some things in Christ. That's what I found in the race conversation. And it's I feel like it's gotten less polarized. I feel like, well, uh, I don't know if it'll ever be. Well, just in the wake of 2020, I feel like you just could not even talk about it without people assuming so much. It was so annoying. It's like, you know, the Bible talks about this a lot, right? Like this is like, leave aside these political categories and let's just look at Ephesians. Let's look at Roman. Let's, you know, um, but I feel like it's gotten a little bit better now, but um, tell it, I, I would love to know, cause I didn't even, I, I found out you're writing this book maybe two or three months ago um, the, as it was coming out. So I didn't know you're working on this. So could you tell us the backstory? What, is this something that's been like, years in the making or is it something that you uh, got heart for more recently or? Oh my goodness. (laughs) If you would have told me, Preston, that I would be writing a book about race, even three to four years ago, I would never have believed you in a million years. Look, (laughs) you know, um, I serve a denomination and I lead nationally in the area of discipleship. So I love all those traditional things like helping people read the Bible more deeply, learning how to pray, do their daily quiet time, go on retreats. I'm a trained spiritual director, that kind of stuff. You know, that's that's my jam. I love that. And quite literally, anything related to race or racial reconciliation is in a different department (laughs) in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And so I myself am African-American. By the way, I'll say that because my last name, Sanchez, confuses people. My husband is Latino. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm African-American, but I didn't really see the racial reconciliation conversation as my calling or my jam. I put it in a separate category, as many people do now. What happened? <laughs> yeah. What happened was uh, 2020 happened. 2020 happened. And during that season of racial reckoning, when everything shut down, all of my travel stopped. I travel extensively and new questions began to emerge for me. One of them was, what is the relevance of all of these lovely discipleship practices to this conversation right now? Like, how are they related? Furthermore, why do we still have so much racism and racial inequity in places where there are so many so-called Christian disciples? Hmm. What is going on? Hmm. (laughs) Right? So those questions began to nag at me and nag at me. And I realized, oh my goodness, there's been a massive hole in the way we've been doing our discipleship. The very fact that we put them in separate categories is problematic. Usually we think about uh, anti-racism or racial reconciliation. And we think about justice and it is a justice matter, mm-hmm. but I think more fundamentally it's a discipleship matter. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that we've lost sight of that is really why we have such a problem in places with lots of Christians. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love that you put it in the category of discipleship. I, I smuggled it. I did the, the, I wrote a book on discipleship seven years ago and had a whole chapter on ethnic reconciliation. And I remember the publishers were like, does this fit? I'm like, it doesn't not like, how can, (laughs) 
<laughs> but it, but it, but I hadn't seen yes. anybody really. I just kind of smuggled it in because I'm like I don't. And it was one of like there's there's several kind of just social areas that when we think about discipleship, it's usually private personal holiness, which obviously is incredibly important. Obviously is tethered to any kind of structural kind of um, concerns we should have. But I just, I don't like separating the two, these kind of broad concerns about social justice or ethnic reconciliation and then personal holiness. Like they should all be wrapped up into one ball, right? So you are getting at the heart of the matter in terms of what has gone wrong. And the answer really is hundreds of years old in terms of how Christianity has developed in our culture and in you know, other places. It has different expressions. Well, um, let's just stick with Western Christianity, uh, especially among white, predominantly white Western uh, Christians. What you see is that there does tend to be a disconnect between an understanding of our individual discipleship mm-hmm. as opposed to any uh, more systemic or societal aspects of what our discipleship means or looks like. And as I'm saying, that that disconnect between kind of like personal and communal discipleship uh, goes way back because Preston, um, let's just let's just stick to America. A lot of Christians in America, we a lot of people say, oh, you know, from the beginning, tons of Christians here, but we also have had slavery here from the very beginning, and we have had oppression of indigenous people and others. So immediately from the beginning, you have this clash of what the Bible says about justice and how to treat marginalized people and what the actual people who were here and in power wanted to do mm-hmm. in order to further their interests, right? So that creates some major cognitive dissonance. And what you have is a form of discipleship that, that develops and is focused more on the individual, personal aspects of holiness and kind of pushes away the larger questions of justice. Mm-hmm. So is this, I mean, everything you're saying in a non-white church, and I don't want to collapse all non-white churches together as if they have the same background experience, but yes. just generally speaking, is what you're saying pretty well, more well-known among non-white churches as you travel around and go to different <laughs> yes. I mean, are you writing this to yes. more of the, the white American evangelical church? Because it sounds like, as I understand it, I mean, you go into a black church or something, you wouldn't have to convince them that like these questions are part of discipleship, but... No. Oh, what a great question. So couple thoughts. First of all, yes, as it concerns churches that actually have been more at the margins, right? And that is many churches of color, especially the black church. The things that I am saying um, don't apply as much here. Um, they have, we, in the black church, there has not been as much of a disconnect. There is immediately uh, an understanding of a holistic expression of discipleship, which involves um, heart, mind, body, soul, involves personal and systemic. It's been that way for years, you know, but perhaps it's a little bit more easier for that to be the case when you're marginalized and don't have a power structure to uphold. Right. Uh, But I would say really this dynamic, I don't love to kind of really hone in too much on the black white divide. That's our reality in the United States. But Anywhere, anywhere that you have um, a group that has more power than another group, you will start to see these divisions happen with regard to discipleship. Mm-hmm. A little bit more of an emphasis on the personal kind of aspects versus what the gospel or what the Lord demands in terms of justice for all, right? Um, power does tend to corrupt. That That is true regardless sure, yeah, of who yeah. you are and where you are. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, Michelle. I don't know if, if I mean, we've known each other for a few years now, but I, what? How were you raised? Were you raised a Christian? Were you raised uh, middle class, upper class, lower lower middle class? Like, what was your upbringing, and and does that contribute to kind of how you're thinking through these questions now? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question and didn't make assumptions about my background. I really appreciate that. So you asked, let me actually um, address something else that you asked. I didn't answer yet. You said, who, who is this for? Like, are you basically talking to white Christians? That's a great question. I, well, I wanted this to be relevant to everyone with an emphasis to um, white Christians, but also to those who have been very comfortable within white Christianity, which okay, sure is me. <laughs> that, yeah. that is the category that I have um, been in. And there are reasons for that. I was born in the South Bronx. My parents grew up across the street from each other in the Bronx. Um, but through a uh, like a low-income home purchase program, they were able to move out to Long Island. And Long Island has, you know, the suburbs, well-resourced school districts. So we went from a very under-resourced situation and predominantly people of color to a well-resourced school district for me and my siblings, predominantly white. Okay. And so most of my upbringing has been in predominantly white contexts, and also a lot of my Christian experiences. Yeah, I could say pretty much all of my Christian experience has been in one or another predominantly white context. Okay. That provides me, I would actually say with a very unique perspective sure. on this yeah, yeah, for a few reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Remember I said, um, even four or five years ago, I would never have imagined writing a book about race because if I look at my own life, things have been pretty okay for me personally. Mm -hmm. they, they've been okay. Like mm -hmm. I don't remember experiencing tons of interpersonal racism, you know, bigotry, none of that stuff. I had a, I had a pretty great great uh, upbringing, pretty great career. And I used to be a banker. Now I'm in ministry. That's a story for another day. But I've had opportunities, you know, and listen, we're living in a time where you can have a black president of the United States at the same time as you have Ferguson. That's some crazy stuff right there. Yeah, Preston. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is that about? But I, you know, um, I have definitely been uh, one of those people of color who has had an exceptional experience. And I mean that literally, that I've had pretty good opportunities and experiences, but over time, and especially in 2020, it hit me, man, but I still am an exception to the rules. There are still very discouraging and persistent patterns of racial inequity in almost every category that can be measured. And just because I had some opportunities and escaped that doesn't mean we still have some entrenched patterns of racial inequity to deal with. And so the Lord opened my eyes as someone very comfortable where I was yeah. to um, use my platform to make a difference. I'm curious if your geographical locations would would contribute to that. I mean, it's being raised Long, Long Island, East Coast, I would imagine. I'm, I'm a West Coast guy. Would, yes. And now in, you've been in Chicago for a number of years. I mean, I would imagine that's different than you know, Southern Mississippi or something. I, I, I'm again, I'd never lived in Southern Mississippi. I don't want to make assumptions, but it, well, even, from, <laughs> be, even being raised in, Cal in California, when I talk to my friends who are raised in the South, I'm like, Oh my word. Like that's wow. Like <laughs> there's just some leftover, not only, I don't want to even say leftover, but stuff in the South that maybe happened 10, 20, even if you say, well, that was uh, 50 years ago. I'm like, okay, but it still has 
that still leaves a pretty long lasting footprint, let alone that there's, it's not just 50 years ago, but um, w- w- yeah, your geographical location, do you think that maybe contributed to maybe you having a definitely? Experience? Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, that's a very perceptive question. My family, my ancestors moved up to the North from the South. So they were part of the great migration. Um, on one side, my father's side on the other side, my mom's side, we come from the Caribbean, but there was this sense certainly in the, in the deep South of like, okay, um, this is a really tough area. We need to get out of here. (laughs) Okay. So thousands, tens of thousands of, of black people moved up to the Northern cities. And, you know, interestingly, a lot of them, uh, came up with an attitude of, we want to forget all that stuff that we left behind. We just want to let it go. I was not raised with any kind of, oh, you know, black pride or let's talk about race all the time. It was like, thank God we're out of that situation. (laughs) Like like now we can like, you know, whatever, take advantage of some opportunities and have a nice life. Right. And so there was a whole lot of people that that's what they were about. Um, But, you know, interestingly, that's created some divides even within the black community. Because, you know, it's like, no, we still have problems here. So if, if there are some folks who are escaping, you know, the worst aspects of systemic racism, hopefully you don't forget where you came from. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember um, reading both Ibram Kendi and Thomas Sowell, who were coming from two black intellectuals, coming from very different ends of the political spectrum. But both of them talking about the tension to that situation, um, yes. people coming north and moving in and then you already have people established in the north who have maybe gained some wealth and like well don't come here causing problems like tension within the black community even like tension largely across kind of socio-economic lines or people that had um assimilated um and were yes happy with their assimilation whatever and others that weren't wanting to assimilate and causing problems and i don't it was fascinating for me to read as an outsider looking in i'm like wow that's there's nothing simple about this this trajectory Wow. I, well, I have so many questions about your book. So uh, I do have it. You sent, <laughs> your publisher sent me a copy. I've not uh, dove in yet. Uh, so I apologize. I, yeah, I, I wish I could read every book before I talk about it on the podcast. But t- t- give us a, the elevator pitch. What is what is your book? Uh, how does it go about dismantling racism as an act of courageous discipleship? Yes. Oh gosh. Well, there's a couple of there's a couple aspects that I really want people to understand. So as I said, my motivation in writing this was that I realized that the way we've been doing discipleship has actually um, been detrimental when it comes to race relations. If you think about any discipleship 101 textbook, classic, you know, the classic discipleship works, typically there wasn't anything or much mm-hmm. at all related to race and ethnicity. It, it was just considered a separate kind of, kind of thing um, or optional to what it means to be a Christian. And there are historic reasons for that, as we discussed. But the reality is that I wanted disciples, first of all, to understand, okay, this uh, race, anti-racism, racial reconciliation, whatever language you want to use, right? This is about following Jesus. And he has some things to say to us. The scriptures have plenty to say to us about what disciples should be about and also how how we can be well-formed in our spiritual practices in order to engage well in the world for our future to look different than it has in the past. So first of all, the connection between dismantling racism and following Jesus, Mm -hmm. that is kind of the heart and soul of what the book is about. The phrase color courageous, let me say something about this as well. 
So I like to explain to people that when we look at the history of race and discipleship in this country, we can see three broad phases. So the first, I call them the ABCs. So the first one, color averse, color averse. So we literally, for many years, have had forms of discipleship in different parts of the country in which an antagonism toward other races, especially the black race, has been part of the discipleship. So slave owners, you know, had a very elaborate way of exegeting the Bible to um, justify, you know, their their actions. All black people are descendants of um, Ham, and therefore they are to be slaves forever, right? And, and and other things, <laughs> yeah. uh, like black people are not fully in the image of God, right? This is theology that forms discipleship, right? So there was also segregation-based discipleship. So all kinds of ways of exegeting the Bible that teachers and preachers would say we're supposed to be separate. And this is where we can find that in the Bible. All right. So you got for a long time, color a verse discipleship. You're getting discipled. They're using the Bible, but man, you know, essentially the result is division, polarization, and antagonism. What came next? Now, this is after, especially after the civil rights movement, colorblind, colorblind approach to discipleship. And that's really my and your generation here at Preston. Um, Generally, the idea has been, look, uh, we need to treat everybody the same way. Um, We need to see everyone as, as equal. We need to not see color so that we can try to treat people equally and better. And I believe that Many, if not most, disciples today would have some version of that hope in their mind. They're not embracing racism. <laughs> uh, they're wanting to, I mean, some are, okay, some right, are. Right, but right. like, I like to assume the best about most people. are not consciously trying to do that, but want mm-hmm. to treat everyone equally. See, And a lot of folks will say, I don't see color. But one of the things I talk about in the book is that new research uh, is revealing that actually, though, colorblindness tends to produce racial inequity. Huh. It tends to produce the opposite of what we expect that it does. Philip Mazzocco has an extraordinary book called The Psychology of Racial Colorblindness, and he summarizes the copious research um, in many fields about the impact of colorblindness. And he says, in some, it seems that colorblindness, despite its intentions, uh, is harmful, um, almost exclusively harmful, hmm. uh, both on an individual and a communal level. So why is that? Yeah. Well, you have to read the books to get that. But <laughs> in short, in short, if you can't see race, you can't see racism, okay. basically. Hmm. If you are not paying attention to racial difference in general, you will often not notice when there are negative racial disparities. You will simply miss racial inequity because <laughs> you're not looking at it or for it, um, but rather dismissing race as a, a category of importance. So colorblindness for a wide variety of reasons has good intentions, but has been ineffective. And we're discovering that now. We okay. have a society where basically nobody's racist consciously, mm-hmm. but we still have tons of racial inequity. Mm-hmm. Why? what's going on, right? This is where I challenge readers. What we need to become is color courageous. And this is where we, like the Lord, I would say, we still see diversity and greatly appreciate it, understand it to be a gift of the kingdom of God, and we celebrate it. But 
we also notice racial disparity and seek to address it. Yeah. How, how do you, that's super helpful, by the way, because I, I, I've, I think the whole idea of colorblindness, at least in the circles that I now run in, it's become so taboo that it's almost shocking when I hear people say, I don't see color. I'm like, oh, you right. can't say that, right? Like, <laughs> that's so like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I was definitely nurtured in um, in that I never heard that phrase. Well, maybe I did. Um, but it was just kind of, yeah, in, in the air. Like, yeah, very few blatant rate. Like if, I mean, maybe in childhood, definitely there was a blatant racism, but more like, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, like, it was it was pretty like most circles I ran in like you wouldn't if you said something racist explicitly be like well dude you know you're you know um, but there but there, but exactly. there's that there's that 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 yeah I I see everything you're you're saying how, how do you distinguish I have so many questions on this and these are all I mean I I'm such an amateur when it comes to this conversation and just trying to it's so dear to me and yet I always feel like what is my role is as a perpetual learner. And yet I, I just such a huge heart for because I have a heart like you, I have a, such a heart for the Bible and theology and I just see it everywhere in scripture at key turning points in the gospel that for, let's just, let's just, okay. CRT this and, and, and 2020 that, okay. Let's, let's just do what yeah. the Bible says. First of all, let's, let's get our act together before you start freaking out over CRT or whatever. Um, anyway, I, I, I don't want <laughs> how do you distinguish between like socioeconomic disparity and racial disparity? That's always been a big, as I read people across the spectrum, you know, of like how, how to address the race conversation. I, I don't know if I've seen a good job sorting that out. Some people on both extremes kind of collapse everything into one or the other. I don't know if it's by the way I'm wired. I'm like, there's probably something in the middle that's more accurate. I don't know. Um, does that make sense? I don't even know if I'm framing my question right. but um. So um, Heather Mickey wrote an incredible book. I think it was last year. It's called The Sum of Us, S-U-M. And it's all about the negative impact that racism has, not just for people of color, but actually for everybody all together. Okay. And it's making a case for why uh, dismantling racism actually helps everybody, including it helps almost every other issue that we have. Okay. Um, so she makes the case, uh, a very, very cogent case and shows the data, et cetera. If you were, it's not, it's not um, that we want to pit issues against each other. Race and poverty, let's say, mm -hmm. are bedfellows. <laughs> they, yeah. they constantly go together. They're related, you know. Um, but if you were to parse out uh, the research on like which one is the stronger indicator of success in life or of opportunities or of whatever the case may be, race is like the consistent factor, even like looking at poverty, right? Where do we have the most poverty or the most troubles mm -hmm. or um, the, the, the school to prison pipeline, just choose your category. Um, it is always stratified by race. Everything else is always worse the darker you are, yeah. like everything, huh. including poverty. Okay. So, so what that means is that if we were to deal with, let's say, uh, socioeconomic stratification only through that lens, what we probably would get is an unequal, um, we would get unequal outcomes by race. If race is not taken into account at all, that is what tends to happen. The people who are darker will get the worst outcome of that program. Hmm. My goodness, Preston, why is that? I could not 
say, I could not tell you. Um, but it probably, it just probably has to do with the pernicious and long history of racial division in our country and in our world. No matter what the category, doesn't matter what it is, you'll, you'll find that stratification by race. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. It's so complicated. And that's, you know, when, when I think about like societal, all the societal stuff, political stuff gets overwhelming because it's like, how am I supposed to figure this out? You got economists and political scientists who can't really, uh, I don't know. They both kind of say different things. And I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't know. But um, no, that makes sense. W- when it comes to the church, like, I'm curious, I, I don't want to separate. Well, yeah. Cause I don't want to, I, I mean, separate political societal issues from church issues, because I think these are church issues. And yet I could, it, it could, I could see a problem with the church focusing so much on out there where it's not cultivating healthy rhythms within the church of dismantling racism, building right. a beloved community. How do we go about like, is that, if you were, if, if somebody brought you into a church and said, Michelle, you got six weeks, help us do what you're wanting to accomplish here. What would that look like in, in a local church? So this is a fantastic question. And, you know, Martin Luther King talked about in order to see transformation in the world, we have to start with transformation in ourselves. Yes. It begins with internal transformation. For me, that's, that is the heart of it. So if I have six weeks in a church, first of all, I want to start by pointing people back to our savior, Jesus. Um, this is not about the, the donkey. Um, it's not about the elephant, right? It is about the lamb of God. So we're going to first start with that, you know, mm-hmm. make clear that I have no agenda other than focusing in on the kingdom of God. And what that means is sometimes people with more progressive leanings may be upset. Other times people with more conservative leanings may be upset. Okay. Jesus upset everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so first of all, let's, let's hone in on Jesus and ground ourselves in the word of God. Then I would want uh, to focus in as well on what is the end goal. So Martin Luther King has another great quote, and it's all about what really is the purpose of where we're going. Because I would say in the world and in the church, we probably have different end games. Okay. Now, Martin Luther King um, had a very biblical end goal called beloved community beloved community. Okay. Here's that quote from him. I do not think of political power as an end. Neither do I think of economic power as an end. They are ingredients in the objective we seek in life, the creation of a truly brotherly society, the beloved community. Yeah, that's good. We follow Jesus and the greatest command according to him was learning to love God and love others well, sacrificially grounded in the love of Christ. This was King's vision too, but he, unfortunately, his life was cut short before he had the chance to really expand upon it. But centering the end game, not just in civil rights, economic power, political equality. Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately the dream is beloved community. And ultimately we know that that will be fulfilled only in Jesus. So we want to keep pointing people back to it. Okay, so what happens in between? We start with Jesus. We're going to the beloved community. In between, there's a few things that need to happen. One, I like to point to the fact that in the scriptures, disciples are constantly called to wake up, Mm -hmm. to awaken Mm -hmm. to darkness that is around us that we might miss. 
it is very easy to live our Christian life and to be pretty comfortable not seeing and understanding um, the depths of darkness that may be at work around us. So these days, I think there are many believers who really have no idea. This includes me, by the way, Mm -hmm. because I've had a pretty comfortable life. No idea of some of the injustices and inequities that continue to rage around us. Um, And, you know, 2020, I think a lot of people were like, whoa, you know, (laughs) starting to understand what that looked like, which is great. But we have a biblical basis for this as well, to awaken, to awaken. So the disciples need to wake up and actually see. And so, you know, go over that. Another aspect that I like to talk about is just how sin has impacted everything, even our ability uh, to think properly. Mm -hmm. So there's something called the noetic effect of sin, okay, which is even our thought processes have been impacted by sin. How does that relate to the race conversation? Well, in things like unconscious bias, we may have the best of intentions in our actions, but yet still end up treating people differently. That is a result of unconscious bias, which research shows pretty much everybody manifests in one way or another, right? My goal is to just help people, right, make these connections between the truths of the the word of God, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like sin, for example, (laughs) um, and then help us to see how that works out and relates uh, when it comes to race and the racial challenges that we face. So that's a really, really short... No, answer that's to great. a big question. <laughs> no, that's super. I mean, I love that. The So that's where you got to, the, in the subtitle of your book, Build Beloved Community, yeah. as the goal is taken from taken from King. I, I love that because I do think, and, and maybe this was largely in the wake of 2020, Christians who are concerned about race, and I think asking some really great, great questions, I think it's almost like they were leaping past the church to kind of stuff going on in society, which right. I, I would very much resonate. I'm like, yes, yes, that this is an issue. Christians should be agents for good. But when our churches are not kind of modeling the very thing we're trying to produce in society, I'm like, let's, can we do it? Can we get our act together maybe first? Not not to organize it in chronological terms necessarily, but like, I want our churches to be manifesting yeah. the very polis, the policy political entity that we're wanting from society. And if we want to have the biggest impact, you know, the, the church has the resources for the internal transformation that we need to have the greatest lasting impact. Okay. So, um, that is one of the things I would say that, yes, like we can just go out there and pursue justice in the abstract. And that is fine. That is good. That is fine. We can partner with our brothers and sisters. I mean, with others in the common good, right? No matter where they are, where they come from. At the same time, in Christ, we have these incredible resources, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can manifest a supernatural love and ability to forgive as God has forgiven us. We can, we can lavish grace upon people, even as, you know, uh, we're experiencing frustration on the, on the way. So, you know, for example, you know, uh, people have pointed out that in a lot of the recent progress that's been made, um, in a, on a secular basis for justice, there still has been kind of a shadow side to it. Like the whole idea of cancel culture mm-hmm. or, um, the, the kind of death of, of, of forgiveness. I mean, these are, these are things that as believers we have resources for, um, and I do believe like in the, the civil rights movement where that was led by the black church, we saw that. We saw this beautiful love-fueled mm-hmm. movement that mm-hmm. transformed the world. 
Yeah. Yeah, the forgiveness piece, that's tough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What is forgiveness not (laughs) tough? (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, (laughs) I I did start to see it seem like Uh, Christians almost pitting justice up against forgiveness. Like, we're going to pursue justice at the expense of forgiveness. But I think, is there a way to do both? This episode is sponsored by One Million Home, an awesome organization dedicated to winning the battle to get orphan kids home. Did you know that there are 5.4 million kids in orphanages worldwide? Did you also know that the majority of those kids, given the right support, could actually return to their parents or other family members? In the face of family separation throughout the world, God is setting the lonely into their families. And One Million Home is doing an amazing job creating pathways to reunify kids with their families throughout the world. You might remember that I had uh, Brandon Stiver on the show from One Million Home a few podcasts ago. It was episode 989. And I was so blown away at the amazing work that he and One Million Home are doing. So we are inviting uh, Theology and Raw listeners, the Theology and Raw community to join the movement of family reunification for Giving Tuesday this year. That's November 29th. It's coming up. It only costs $250 to reunite a kid with their family. So that's what your Giving Tuesday gift will be going to. So if you have a heart for orphans, and if you're a Christian, you kind of should, um, and you want to contribute to more effective and biblical ways of caring for orphans, then go to onemillionhome.com forward slash T-I-T-R. That's the number one, then million home, no spaces, dot com forward slash T-I-T-R. This episode is sponsored by Biola University's Talbot School of Theology. Okay, so I get asked a lot about which seminaries do I recommend, and my response is always the same. It's, well, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. But no matter what, Talbot is always one of my top recommended schools, partly because I feel like I know like half the professors there, so I can vouch for you know who they are and and. and I know their character. I know what you're going to get into. But I've also spoken on campus, which had amazing time on the campus there. I've had several of their profs on the podcast. Here's what I love most about Talbot. They do a fantastic job combining rigorous scholarship that's saturated with a deep love for the church. And it's all integrated with a pervasive emphasis on spiritual formation in the lives and hearts of the students. The professors are super down to earth. They're involved in their churches. Many of them are pastors at their church. And they also write high-powered academic books. So if you're looking to deepen your understanding of scripture um, or just be more equipped to serve your family, your church, the world around you, Talbot offers many different courses and degree programs. And they also have done a really fantastic job with their online program where you can attend live online or watch pre-recorded courses courses by some amazing professors. So if you've been thinking about going to seminary, check out biola.edu forward slash Talbot. That's T-A-L-B-O-T. Biola.edu forward slash Talbot to get more information. You mentioned the progress that has been made. Have you seen, you're in churches all the time, different churches. I mean, have you seen since, let's just say since 2020, progress made in churches where you're like, man, you guys have come a long way in a really healthy way. And, and, uh, this is really encouraging. Like, are you hopeful when you go around and look at other churches? So it's complicated. (laughs) I, I'm sure that you've heard about, perhaps even talked about on this podcast, um, the sorting of evangelicalism. So we are seeing a lot of fracturing really going on within the church, right? Um, a lot of polarizations developing in many different areas, whether they be human sexuality, 
race or a whole host of other things that are kind of dividing um, evangelicals in particular, but also beyond that. So when I hear your question, what I think about is, well, uh, it feels like there's been a sorting and there are some, and I'm primarily in the evangelical space, there are some evangelical churches that have seen the light and um, have are, are on a journey. They have embraced the journey and are on the journey. And I am very encouraged by this group. But then I think there are also others where there's been a backlash um, and it's now harder than it was before to make any progress. Incredibly, I see both. Is that because maybe the people there, like the congregation is now seeing any kind of racial language through political terms? Um, if you talk about racial, even now, like racial reconciliation, five, six, eight, ten years ago, was starting to catch on. People, conservative churches were yeah. starting to, but now it's like, whoa, are we going woke? Are we, you know, whatever doing this? Like, is that, is yeah. that part of the problem that everything's interpreted through a political lens? 100%. Okay. 100%. We have, and not just that, right? Because a political lens isn't necessarily bad, but the problem is that a lot of our politics now is driven by fear. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. driven by fear. And anger. Um, it, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's driven by zero sum yeah. situation. So uh, if we help, you know, one group, another group's going to lose. And hmm. you know that that kind of fear-based politics um, all around, you know, that that we see everywhere. That is, I think, then the problem becomes. Yeah, if you're looking at race through the lens of fear-based politics, then yeah, the whole conversation becomes unnecessarily polarized. How do we get through this? How do because we got another uh, big election in a couple of years? I mean, we just went through the you know prime whatever the midterms, but I mean it's it's not politics are not going away. And if we don't get this right, I think our, it's going to be worse this next time. I think. I mean, and this is every single pastor I talked to said 2020 was the hardest year of ministry, and it wasn't because we went through a global pandemic per se. It was shepherding people through all of the political responses to this. And then obviously the race conversation was a big deal wrapped up into that. Um, how do we, how do we, how do we disciple our yeah. churches out of this kind of polarized mindset? I think what helps me is to focus on bright spots, bright spots. What I mean by that is generally speaking right now, um, we're going through some dark times. Again, fear and polarization seem to be what's in the air. It's what's in the culture. And of course, you know, we can pray and work towards something different. But the reality is change is hard. Change is slow. I say in the book, it may be hard to change the world, but it's a little easier to change your world. Your world. <laughs> okay. Your particular uh, church community your particular circle of influence, your particular family, um, the leadership roles that you hold. What are the things that can be done in those spheres? And as we engage in our own spheres of influence, I believe we will start to see bright spots. We'll start to see encouraging things happen that we can lean into, right? That is the only way, I think, to keep going, because if we keep looking at the big picture, um, we could get discouraged at some of the things that have been happening. But bright spots and, and change are always possible within our own 
within our own worlds. Yeah. Yeah. How's, how, how's the ECC doing as a whole, if I can get specific, I mean, this is your context. I've spoken publicly with great affirmation of the ECC church. I think you guys, I just, I love how the ECC church, for those who aren't familiar with it, the evangelical covenant church. I mean, you guys are solidly evangelical. You major on the majors. You're, you allow a lot of local church uh, flexibility. I think it's a good balance between local autonomy and denominational affiliation. Um, but you guys from the beginning have been passionate about so-called social issues before it was kind of sexy to be passionate about them, but you're doing it because of the gospel. Like it wasn't like, Oh no, we're drifting to liberalism. It was we're drifting close deeper into the heart of the gospel, which has all these social implications. Yeah. And, and I know it's not perfect. And I, you know, talk to pastors and say, well, it's not perfect, you know, but it's, it's, I love the lane you guys are in. Um, so what's the underbelly of it all? <laughs> Tell me some dirt here. No, um, but yeah, how is the denomination? How has it weathered the storm in the last couple of years? Okay. Uh, as with everything else, it's sort of a sophisticated answer here. But let me first say that um, for anyone who is involved with the conversation about race and the church, most people will recognize the Evangelical Covenant Church as a pioneer in terms of racial righteousness, which is the language we've used for many, many years. We've been really pioneering in this area, and many of current thought leaders in this area um, are affiliated in one way or another with the Evangelical Covenant Church. A couple names that come to mind would be like Michael Emerson. He's the author of Divided by Faith. Um, He actually goes to my covenant church. Oh, really? (laughs) My local covenant church. Yeah, here in in Chicago. Um, And I interviewed him for the book and everything else. But he's a covenant person, or uh, Sung Chan Ra, is another person that many people know, um, recently wrote Prophetic Lament. Dominique Gilliard is our director of racial righteousness, author of Rethinking Incarceration, Subversive Witness. These are all covenant Mm. people. And there's like so many, so many more people I could name, um, who have just been involved for years and years and years, um, in this work and in shaping the kingdom of God. I, I think there's a couple of interesting things going on with the covenant. So first of all, this may come as a surprise, but we used to be a hundred percent Swedish. It was the Swedish Covenant Church. <laughs> okay, that's, that's as wide as you get. Now, right I there. wasn't there. Like, yeah. yeah, I wasn't there at the time. But um, this this added a few unique elements. So um, the Swedes came over. We're talking like the last uh, hundred years or so here, like they're recent uh, immigrants to the United States more so than um, previous groups that were here and established from Europe. So when they came, the Swedes, they uh, settled a lot in the Midwest and such, and they experienced ethnic discrimination of various kinds because they were seen as outsiders, as lower than the, the people who were here, the existing white people that were here, right? Swedish was the official language of the Covenant Church until like the 1950s, I want to say. No way. Official language of the wow. Swedish Covenant Church. I had no idea. Yeah. And they, they had to vote, you know, in order to make it English and try to reach people who were non-Swedish. This is like recently, okay? Now, What is interesting about that is I think because they experienced a little bit of ethnic marginalization themselves, I mean, of course, now Swedes are just, you know, considered white for the most part and assimilated, but there's this memory of that ethnicity was important and that they were marginalized. And then there was an an evangelistic emphasis in the 50s, 60s to say, look, we want to reach our neighbors here. And so we need to be welcoming of people besides Swedish people 
if we're going to reach the world for Jesus, right? Of course. And so there was a lot of talk around <laughs> what that means, you know, to move from all Swedish to, to embracing others. Mm. So you see this, this is in like the water um, and it starts early. And then there are several key events throughout history, uh, our covenant history that led to where we are now. But one other thing I will mention for anyone that's interested I'd say, hey, if there's like one secret to the covenant and multi-ethnicity, what is it? It's something we call the six-fold test. Okay, six-fold test. You can Google this. Just Google six-fold test, Evangelical Covenant Church. It'll pop right up. And essentially, this is something that we developed years ago. Forgive me, I don't remember the exact year, maybe 20, 30 years ago, something like that, or longer. And essentially, these are six tests that we use to measure our progress when it comes to race. Hmm. Okay. So here are the the six words, six P's, population, participation, power, pace setting, purposeful narrative, and practicing solidarity. Now I could say a lot about each of these population. This is just straight out diversity, just straight out. Do we have the numbers? Are there people, uh, you know, are there Brown people here? (laughs) Right. Just, Basic, okay. Quick, a lot of people stop there. Quick, Michelle, for clarity, the 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 are these are yeah. these building off each other? Is that what we're going to hear here? Do they build off each other? I'd say you can do one without the others, but okay. if you do, um, you probably are not going to have much success. Okay, I mean, it sounds like they all build off the first one for sure, but the the rest maybe. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So sort of. Um, once you get toward the latter end. I think some of them are interchangeable or exchangeable, depending on like the order. Ideally, you're doing all at once. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay? But, pop- but yes, uh, straight out diversity, population. Do you have people of color in the room? Second, are they participating? You can just be at the room, in the room, but actually not um, have any kind of voice or really be at the table. Okay. Power is the third one. And this is what we ask, are the positions and structures of influence influenced by the gifts of diverse populations? So this is saying we want to not look at just who's in the room, but do they have a vote? (laughs) Really? Are they able in our system as it's set up? Are they represented there and able to make a difference? Do they have power? Where does the power lie here? And do we see people of color? Is there. is uh, is the word influence too weak to stand in for power, or would that be a close synonym? I'm asking because the word power in as a structure of the church, I'm nervous about that term across the board. I'm not nervous, not nervous, because I, I certain maybe certain versions of power where it turns maybe coercive power is what I'm thinking of, which is just anybody with power they're gonna struggle with wanting to coerce, like use that power for selfish gain or whatever. Um, so I, I don't, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of thinking. We have seen this on a very practical level. So we will, we'll literally, literally say, okay, within the covenant church, let's look at our, our boards. Let's look at our committees that are actually designing ministry and ministry initiatives. Let's look at our leadership teams, our covenant leadership team. How are we doing there? Because a lot of times what you'll have is an organization that, um, you know, their website will look beautiful with lots of diverse people. You know, maybe their <laughs> audiences are diverse in different ways or whatever. Right. But then you look at the board, you look mm-hmm. at all the leaders, you know, everybody is white. 
And yeah. so that's the kind of thing where people of color end up getting frustrated and potentially leaving or, you know, raising justice concerns because it's like, um, you know, we want to also have influence. So influence, I think, can be used and we use it to describe what we mean. Um, but you need something power. stronger than influence. I see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's good. So, and, and a lot of times it actually is off people's radar. They don't necessarily think, oh, yeah, we say we value diversity, but really, do we see it at all levels or is it just on the bottom of our organization? That's very common, Preston. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I got my head down. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but, you know, once you see it, you notice it and sure. you begin to say, oh, what can we do about that? And that's what's happened with us. A couple of other things, and then we can dive into any one of these more, but pace setting. So pace setting is like, are we just kind of lagging behind others when it comes to, to race or are we like setting the pace? Are we doing pioneering, you know, um, interesting, creative things? Or are we just kind of catching up like when somebody complains, right? <laughs> Which is a big <laughs> difference. <laughs> um, okay. Purposeful narrative. Do the stories of different kinds of people become incorporated into our overarching story and history at this place, right? Do all of the streams of stories flow together into one story moving forward? You know, whose stories do we get to hear um, at our events, at our gatherings, um, in our like nostalgia, you know, our legacy? Um, whose stories are we hearing? And finally, practicing solidarity. And so this is how are we sharing in the suffering of others in an individual and communal level? Okay, man. So each one of these, right, is pretty incredible. But I hope what I hope to communicate here is I think that the covenant has done well because we're coming at it from so many different angles. Um, and it's the combination of all of these that really leads to transformation. Mm -hmm. the, this is really, really helpful. Uh, the, I feel like the first three I've heard under different terms. The second three are really interesting to me. This is, I, I've not considered it like this. Um, the purposeful narrative one well, all three, all the, all of them are great. Um, the last three yeah. though are, are particularly in, enlightening. I'm going to try and represent, like, I'm trying to think of like what questions would people have? Cause I, I as I mm -hmm. talk to people, they, a lot of, well, I'll just say majority white Christian leaders, when they hear this, they get a, like, yes, like they get, I don't hear a lot of verbal aversion. I hear a lot of right. like, right. Where do I start? I got a sermon to prepare. Well, this, first that, of all, you know, I, I'm so encouraged by that. Praise Jesus. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'll see it at the, at the, at the, um, yeah. it's, it's funny. The, uh, the, the conference that you're going to be speaking at, um, like it's the, might be the only setting I've seen where the, it's way more eth ethnically diverse on stage than it is in the congregation. Among the congregation, I think there is a hunger for people to, to want to see these things implemented, but just a, either they have lack of power to implement it or they're in spaces where it's just like, I don't, it's, I, I don't know how to move forward. Um, the population. So if, if a church like, yeah, I always use my own example, Idaho is, uh, or Boise is, I think 92% Caucasian and it might be five, 6% Latino. African African American might be one to two percent. We do have a, a fairly decent size uh, refugee population, so uh, most people of color you see are wearing like full burqa or something, you know. Um, 
So they, what, what, how would somebody in Boise like is it, and, and the class and I've talked to Derwin about this and others and it, it's just it's kind of like your your church should generally reflect the demographic of where it's at. You can't really there's not a whole lot more you can do. Is that or or also you can also partner with other churches in other areas that are maybe just across maybe geographical lines, just in some kind of awareness and partnership and camaraderie, um, even if in your local community might not have as much diversity as you would hope. Is that, is, are there other things that I'm missing here? Or what would you say about the geographical limitations? Yes. So the first thing that I like to point out is that Jesus was mainly engaged in a mono-ethnic ministry context. That's true. Yeah. Jesus was called to the Jewish people. <laughs> he called 12 Jewish disciples, right? And and he was clear about this, that this is his call. And he is he's in Israel. Jesus didn't travel outside, you know, to do lots of global missions at the time, right? Um, he was a primarily mono-ethnic minister. But there are so many interesting things that we see in the life of Jesus. He cast a vision for something beyond that. He started with Israel, but he would constantly interact with the ethnic minority, right? The marginalized person. He would raise them up as heroes in his stories. The Good Samaritan as an example, right? Um, he would go to where they were and bring his people with them. Okay. That's, uh, you know, the, the woman at the well and going into Samaria and engaging there. He would do these things um, to uphold values for something more and something bigger than what was in the immediate context. Of course, at the end of his ministry, we have the Great Commission. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Now, that word nations actually in the Greek is ethne. Mm -hmm. Ethne. Was it sound like Preston? <laughs> ethnicity, yeah. right? So an even better translation really than a socio-political nation would be all the diverse people groups, all the ethnic groups of the world. I want you to go and make disciples of them, right? In a very similar way, I think that no matter where you are, whatever the composition of your immediate place, you can be casting a vision for God's heart, you can cast a vision for God's heart and you never know where people will be going, where God will call people, what kind of opportunities they'll have, mm. right? You don't know that. Your job is to cast the vision. Okay. And I like to compare this to um, how, uh, say, say a little church in Idaho, since mm -hmm. that's where you're from, yes, mm -hmm. uh, a little church there in Idaho, predominantly white setting, can be a global missions church. They can have a heart for global missions, even though, guess what? Some people from that little, you know, unreached people group in Indonesia, they don't go to their church, right? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they can learn about this people group. They can understand what it is that they need. They can support. They can visit. They can, part, you know, have a heart as a church to the extent that they are engaged, yeah. right, in global missions, even though nobody from the field is coming to their church. So, in okay, so I think we've confused a little bit having a multi-ethnic church with just being engaged in the work of racial righteousness and racial justice. You can do that no That's matter good. what the composition of so your church. A global multi-ethnic multi vision that um, if at all possible is manifested in the church to the extent that it can be. But even if it's not to the extent we would want, 
having a, a, a vision. It just saturates everything we do say. And, um, yeah. And e- yes. e- I mean, even in Boise, it is, I mean, a lot of predominantly white churches have, you know, refugee churches that use their space. You know, some churches have two or three different churches. And I just want to say, first of all, that's amazing. Uh, uh, but second of all, is, is there, could we explore what integration could look like? First of all, it's going to be super messy because you're dealing with, yeah. I mean, strong cultural differences here. Um, but like, I don't know. And I've seen churches kind of toy with this a little bit and you begin to see people kind of in, not just, again, I, I'm just so allergic against the idea of assimilation. Like, oh no, they can come and sing our white songs, you know, but is there a way we can actually integrate different cultural expressions, which will be messy. People will leave, you know, services will go longer if you're generally integrating, Yes, <laughs> but, um, at least start to ask the question, is there more integration we can do? Cause I think there is, I, I don't know with the population, I do feel like there's usually more, for lack of better terms, population availability than we sometimes have our eyes open to. But So we need to engage in relationship, yes. And, and evangelicals, especially white evangelical people, like to hone in on that one. Um, yeah. And we have more work to do. We yeah. do have more work to do. If there's people in your community that could be integrated, amen, 100%, go after it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also have these major um, systemic issues that we could make a difference in, right? We could begin to have a heart and a culture even around that as well in our churches. And I think that's where we really need to grow. Yeah, good, good. I have another question. And this, I, I'm not sure how to a- ask this. It could, it could even be offensive, maybe how I'm asking it, but I hope a relationship will cover that. <laughs> yeah. Don't, okay. yeah. don't you love that preface? I, I'm... Um, <laughs> And I don't even know what category this would be. Maybe let's say it would include the first three, but let's just participation and power or even some of the purposeful narrative. Sometimes I feel, and this comes probably more from like white progressives when they think, no, yes, we need to empower people of color, especially black people in our, in our largely white churches. It seems to have this political kind of like, undertone to it like and I'm, let, me, let me try to find a maybe a more offensive example yeah <laughs> like like let's empower we yes. need somebody of color on on our leadership team okay well let's get right candace owens is on you know is is part of our chair let's have her like oh no not not a right winger or you know right. me personally one of the right. most i would say christian nationalism blatant sermons anti-crt anti-woke sermons in that language. I don't like that language, but that's the, you know, was from a black yeah. guy at, at a conference. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. th- this, this is like, I'm so offended at how like nationalistic this sermon was. So yeah, is it simply integrating race in participation of power or, or is there a, are there better forms of that? I'm not, I'm not even sure how to even ask it, you know, cause I, I, I don't, I, I do think there is a maybe a majority view among uh, especially black Christians in America. And then you do have these kind of outliers that are, I want to respect everybody's individuality, everybody's narrative, but I don't know. I'm nervous about, here's, here's where I'm nervous about. I'm nervous about white, more right leaning, maybe churches hand selecting the kinds of people in power that are, have maybe more political resonance with them and say, see, all right, we did it. Or, that's right. I don't know. Like, is that is that even a valid concern that people ask you this question before? Yes. This is being able to look through uh, complex lenses here because it's not a very simplistic 
conversation. The reality is, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, we are at a strange moment in history, right? It used to be that if you were black um, in the United States, you can almost guarantee a certain kind of experience. Now it's more, mm. it's more diverse. I'll sure. just stay with the black community, right? Okay. I mean, you have some people that can catapult all the way to the top in various parts of society now who are African-American and fully buy in to um, the, the idea of meritocracy, which I do. I mean, meritocracy is a great thing. Work hard, get what you deserve, right? I mean, that sounds right. That sounds good. But speaking personally, as an example, I grew up, you know, watching the Cosby show and loved it. And Claire Huxtable was my idol. And I thought I'm going to be just like, you know, uh, the Cosby family when I get older and I'm just going to work hard, get great jobs, have a nice townhouse. It's going to be awesome, you know? Um, and I just bought into fully meritocracy. That's all we need, right? Here's the reality. It works for some black people. It works great for some black people, right? And so it's easy to say, well, look what I did. I worked hard. You need to work hard too, right? Mm. Which Cosby is known for that, um, yeah. by the way. So you have tremendous diversity, even within the black community. You see the same thing in the Latino community when right. it comes to the stance toward immigration, right? Um, right, right yeah. So just because you're black doesn't mean, you know, you're going to understand um the the ongoing realities that still exist. Maybe things have worked out well for you. Um, maybe, you know, uh, certain ideologies have worked fine for you. It's helped me um, to step back as I've gotten older, as more information has become available and really look and see, okay, I, I've had an exceptional experience, but on a larger level, there are still these systemic, bigger picture patterns that's what we need to get at. You can always find individuals now, praise God, individuals who don't match that, but yeah. those systemic inequities still exist. That's what we need to, to get at. In addition to all of the local relational stuff that right, we do. Right, right, So in a sense, I'm hearing you saying like, what, whoever God has brought to you and, and whatever people are qualified to hold positions of influence, leadership, and power, praise God. Um, but just even theologically, let's go be almost beyond individual people in people's individual racial makeup. We do have this blend of personal responsibility, structural injustice yeah. and complicated things that are affecting yes. people of race. Um, so yes. yeah, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. That, no, that's super helpful. Actually. I, I didn't even think about the complexity. It's just because like you, I mean, I'm in lots of, lots of different time kinds of environments and it's just the whole idea of like all these people think this way or whatever. It's like, that just doesn't, it's just, there's so much more diversity out there. And I, lo I actually love that. It gets more complicated and messy and you can't make these assumptions about people. And hopefully stereotypes are starting to go away, but, uh, um, purposeful narrative. I love the purposeful narrative part. Um, I think that's, can you give us an example? Um, and then I'm, I'm we're coming up on an hour here. We're over an hour. <laughs> do, do you have a quick? Because that one, yeah. do you have a quick example of what that could look like? Because I think that is a really like something that I think a lot of people don't even think about, but can be super, super powerful. I think that there are many examples, but one of the things that's been impactful for us over time in the covenant is that we have these racial discipleship pilgrimages. And one of them is called Sankofa. So Sankofa is an African word, which, which means you look back in order to go forward. 
And uh, we invite people of different races into this journey where we go and visit civil rights monuments um, and sites of significance throughout the Deep South. And we tell stories, we listen, we hear stories, um, and we're just constantly sharing, you know, learning. Um, what is your story? Where have you been? And, and especially, where have uh, people of color been? The, the African-American community and church, and how can that, um, those stories speak mm. into who we are, who we're becoming, and, and, and what could be for us going forward? Mm. So yeah, I would call it like a racial discipleship, storytelling kind of journey learning the stories of the past, learning the stories of the present, and then developing new stories for the future. That's one example. You know, it's one thing to take a class and learn about racial inequality. It's another to kind of immerse yourself in an experience where you hear stories and can be transformed that way. It's funny, the only ECC church we have here in town, uh, I know the pastor really well, Josh, and he took his whole church to the local. There is a local, like, I think it's a Black History Museum, not, not museum. Oh. Something and they, but they went as a church and they had the director kind of tell stories about the African American experience yes. in, in Boise, which is you know it's not something you hear about every day. It's like, wait, has there been one? You know, um, but yeah, it was really it was really eye opening. And he said it was such a great discipleship experience for his church. You know, so um, yeah, that's, that's you got awesome. it. Well, yeah. that's it. That's a great example, <laughs> Michelle. Uh, thank you so much for being on Theology and Rod. The book is Color, Courageous Discipleship, Follow Jesus, Dismantle Racism, and Build Beloved Community. It came out just recently, November 1st. It was released. So uh, excited to dig into this. And all the links and stuff will be in the show notes. So please do check it out, Michelle. You're a gift to the church and uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.